whenever we started looking at Romans and giving you a little bit of an insight into the book, we always presented Paul uh, as someone who presented a good argument. He was very good in, in putting forward his point and then coming up in his thinking with what the next question was going to be from those who were hearing uh, this letter uh, and questioning it. And that still stands, so I'm not going to challenge that tonight, but I want you to think of Paul in another light. Not only is he a a great arguer, someone who can present a a good debate, but Paul is a great teacher. This week I've had reason to go back to my teacher training files and to look over some of the core aspects of what it means to teach and to educate and, and what you need to do to sort of get everything right so that hopefully the children in front of you will be able to learn. And as I was going through that and reminding myself of what it meant to teach, And as I was reading over this passage and some that had gone before and some that will come, mainly chapter 7, which ties in closely with chapter 5, Paul is a great teacher, especially in these few verses that we will look at tonight, because what he does is he presents what he wants to teach you. And then he tells you a little bit about it, and before he starts his next section to increase in the knowledge, he reminds you of what you've just done, so he's consolidating Any teachers among you will know that that's a great word to use, consolidating his learning. He's consolidating the information so that we will not be left with any question in our minds about what his point is. So as we come again to hear from Paul, the great debater, but also the Paul, great teacher, let's take a moment and let's still ourselves and let's pray. Father God, we gather here this evening because of that wonderful fact that we've just sung about. You save. And Father, we thank you for salvation. For salvation for us at an individual level. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for calling your people to yourself so that they can grow in the knowledge of you that they can grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. And as we come tonight, I pray that you will help us to learn more. Help us to put aside uh, the distractions that may come our way. Help us to learn what it means to be your people. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Continue to teach us from his life and his example. And I pray that as we leave here tonight... We will be affirmed in our faith. We will also be challenged as to how we are to live in a way that pleases you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're just coming uh, this evening and uh, maybe you've missed one or two of our uh, times looking at Romans and what Paul has to say to us, I'm not going to go through chapter by chapter what we've looked at, but let me take you through some of the key points that Paul has been teaching us already in the four and a half chapters that we have looked at. So far, in what we've looked at, it's been highs and lows. And we've come to a point, a point where this great teacher Paul is bringing everything together so that from this point on, we will not be left with any questions, but we will be assured and in the knowledge of what Paul has been trying to teach us the whole way through. So tonight Paul moves on to talk about two humanities. 
He talks about humanity that came through Adam and then humanity that was to come through Christ, through his death and his resurrection. So everything, everything that we've looked at before, everything else in Romans builds to this point. So Romans so far. Paul has taken a look and he has surveyed the universal extent of human sin and guilt and the glorious adequacy of God's justifying grace in and through Jesus. He's taken a real look at the playing field. And he said, folks, this is what it is like. We are sinful, but God is greater. God's ways are greater. And if you were with us whenever we were stuck in chapter 2 and 3, because it seems so depressing and no way out, we know what Paul was teaching us about sin, but the light came in chapter 3, where we are no longer ruled by the powers of sin, but through a righteousness that came from God. So in teaching us this, he led us down both those ways, down to the depths of what sin was, but also to the heights of God's grace, God's divine mercy. And along the way, he's tackled both audiences that he was writing to, Jews who had come to faith, and also Gentiles who had come to faith, all living in the great city of the empire, Rome. Of course, both coming with their questions, both with their challenges. The Jews thought it, or the converted Jews thought it should have been done in one way, and the Gentiles thought it should be done in another way. And Paul was wanting to make it very clear that they are one people with one father, Father Abraham, through faith, not by birth or descent, but through faith, holding to the promises that God had given Abraham through the covenant. So Paul, addressing his two communities, one characterized by sin and guilt and another by grace and faith. So we come and we start to look at the passage tonight. So Paul has brought us to this point. And in this passage, Paul is known uh, as we would read the New Testament uh, in its original language, Greek. Paul is known for not wanting to put too many commas or full stops in. Paul will start and keep going. And this is one of these passages where Paul is bursting to get his information out. He's so excited about what is going to come that he starts it off and then doesn't give you an answer because he goes straight into something else. And five verses later, he eventually gets around to telling you what he actually wanted to tell you. He is bursting with this wonderful news that is grace found in Jesus Christ. So what he starts in verse 12, he doesn't pick up again until verse 18 because he drifts into another wonderful truth that we will look at. And so to help us understand this passage a little bit more, we look at it in three different ways. We look at it in the best way that Paul does as a teacher, but also as someone who presents a debate to us. So we need to take one more moment before launching into these three areas, and we need to consider one more thing. I'm sure we're all familiar, and indeed we probably all tried to impersonate Winston Churchill and his uh, great speech that was given on the 20th of August, 1940. I don't know if that rings a bell to anyone, but Churchill, writing in wartime, or giving this speech in wartime, he was giving it to the Royal Air Force. They were in the middle of their ongoing battle, the Battle of Britain, and here he was rallying the troops, rallying the Air Force to keep going. 
And it's these famous words. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. He wanted to rally. Rally these airmen to keep going with the Battle of Britain because so many, the whole country, the whole commonwealth, were depending on these men and women of the Royal Air Force to keep going. Last week, Dan took us uh, to verses 10, 11, and 12 of chapter 5, and he left us there. He left us with this wonderful thought that we have been justified. But what Winston Churchill brought and what crept into our thinking was this greater good of all. And so as we move on into these uh, verses this evening, we want to change Churchill's words And so if Paul was writing it, he would say that so many owe so much to only one person. And this is where Paul starts as he introduces us to Adam in verses 12 to 14. So as we go, we don't owe so much to so few. We owe so much to one, and that is Jesus Christ. So let's go and let's look at Adam and let's look at the historicity of sin. So Paul starts off by addressing sin and about how it came into the world. Paul has already made it very clear the gravity of sin. He took us through those uh, chapters earlier on. They must have made such an impact in me that uh, every time I I preach here on this sermon or this series, I keep bringing it up. But he really did get to the nuts and bolts of sin. The gravity of our sin and how it holds us from reaching God. And although he doesn't name Adam initially in this passage, we are fully aware that that is how sin came into the world. Genesis 3, the fall. Mankind sinned against God by doing what God said they should not do. And he moves on to show that As Adam was the door by which sin entered the world, so sin was the door by which death entered in. So Adam, sin, sin, death. He moves on from the one person by which sin and death entered to make it clear that all men through the seed of Adam are under the grips of death. In these first few verses, Paul makes his arrow shot very clear. Adam, perfectly created, fell into sin, and through that sin, death came. And because we are seed of Adam, sin continues through the generations of Adam. And it really does seem as if Paul wants to take us back into chapters 2 and 3 to really remind us of the gravity of sin. But let me tell you, there's better coming, so we're not going to get bogged down. What Paul is presenting this time, rather than getting us into the whole view of sin, is a compare and contrast argument. And we'll come to this argument in our second two parts of our sermon tonight. But let the information that it's coming keep you encouraged as we keep going with just these few verses. So Paul and the historicity of sin. And it's important that we understand this arrow shot that Paul is taking For Paul, Adam isn't just 
one man. For the people who are reading and hearing this letter, Adam isn't just one man. Adam is humanity. It is through Adam that every human being came to be. He is the head of humanity, and every aspect of humanity comes from him, including the nature of sin through the fall. And that is why at the end of verse 14, he refers to Adam as a pattern of the one to come. Throughout Scripture, Adam is seen as a type of Christ. We see a number of these in the Old Testament, a foreshadow, someone who represents a a picture of the coming Messiah as we know Jesus Christ. So here, Adam is seen as one who foreshadowed the coming Messiah. Adam was the head of humanity, just as Christ in his death and resurrection was to be the head of the humanity also. But we've jumped from verse 12 to verse 14, and there's key bits, very compact bits that are included in the verses, verse 13 and the first bit of 14 that we've missed. So I want to share with you to help us understand these verses, uh, commentator Tom Wright, he offers an explanation, and he puts it better than I ever could, so I wasn't going to try and put my words uh, out of his, but rather read to you what he says about verses 13 and 14. So let's remind ourselves, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. So Wright offers this to help us think through this. Verses 13 and 14 explain a puzzle that might otherwise get in the way. A long time passed between Adam and Moses, somewhere around 600 years, Adam was given a direct command and broke it. God gave Israel a set of direct commands through Moses, and they broke them. But in between the two, in this broad brush account of early history, human beings went on sinning and dying, even though there was no law to keep track of what they did. Paul, once again, is highlighting their pervasiveness and the universality of sin. Even in the period between Adam and the law, Adam and Moses, death still had its power to claim people. But Paul remarks in this verse that there is to be a knowledge of the law, whether it be from the natural law, the law that we see in creation, that nature within us that we are to one another, or in the known law passed from one generation to the next. Verse 14, Paul states that nevertheless, and by doing so he enforces his belief that sin is all-pervasive and universal. No one can remain unaffected by it. There is a knowledge of the law, natural law, and the written law that is passed from generation to generation. So every person is affected by sin. So Paul has introduced Adam in these verses. He's done his arrow shot of how Adam, created perfect, fell, and by that fall, sin came into the world, and so from sin came death to all the seed of Adam. And so we move on to to consider Christ 
And so he starts to do a contrast. So Paul has shown Adam as a type of Christ. But as soon as he has done this, he introduces Christ into the picture. And Paul takes a moment to make sure that everyone is with him, again, consolidating the knowledge. And he reminds us that if the many died by the trespass of the one man, and he goes on to present the gift that is on offer. And so this is Paul and the contrast. Just as sin entered in through one man, so the gift that came from God through one man will be enough. Paul, not ashamed of the gospel from Romans 1, is now very clearly presenting the purpose of why Christ came. I imagine in our human nature, we're all guilty from time to time of judging our gifts. I don't mean our spiritual gifts, I mean the practical gifts we get at Christmas or at birthday. And whenever we were younger, we looked at them and they were gauged by their size and their weight. And that was their value, how heavy it was or how big it was. In my household, of course, size always mattered. So if my present was bigger than my sister's, it was obviously of more value. And as we get older, we like to think we shirk off those notions of size and weight. But we go on to the notion, we now look at the monetary value because we have a greater understanding of how much things cost. So if I give someone a gift worth 20 pounds, I'll expect at least a 20 pound gift in return. I would like to say that that stops once we reach our teenage years and our early 20s, but I'm ashamed to say it still creeps in a little bit. Both scenarios miss the complete reason why we have a gift, why we receive gifts, why we give gifts. It's not about their value in terms of weight and size. It's not in terms of their value in money. It's in terms of their heart value, the intent the intent that someone wanted to show love to us, to show care to us, and to give a gift as an expression of that love and of that wish of goodness that is passed from one person to the next. So Paul presents a gift to us in these verses 15 to 17. He wants us to, to see Christ as this gift. This gift that is a pure gift, unconditional, an expression of love and gratitude coming straight from God. And Paul wants to make sure that we see like for like. He wants to see them equally balanced. And so he says that just as sin entered in through one man, that is Adam, so God's grace of uh, expecting sinners is through one man, that is Christ. So sin entered in through one, but God's gift of righteousness comes in through one. It looks like a pretty good balance, but Paul goes on to say it's not as evenly balanced as we think. It turns out that through one man, sin entered the world, and that sin leads to judgment and condemnation. All because of the action of one man, it has this reaction, this chain reaction. Sin leads to judgment and to condemnation. But with the grace that comes from God, the grace that God offers, it comes through one man. And that's it. Grace is enough. 
And what grace opens us up to, grace opens us up to everything that God would have for us, the blessings of salvation and everything that he promised us he would. Grace, what grace does that sin doesn't do, sin will lead you on into the steps of judgment and condemnation. But grace just simply moves you forward to God because what it does is it forgets it removes the trespasses that have gone before. Rather than, them hold, rather than holding them against us, grace moves us freely to God. We need, we need to pause a moment and think about this. Because this is something we know. This is something we have been learning in Sunday school. This is something that we have heard from pulpits wherever we have sat under them. And what happens when we hear things and we hear them again and again and again, we get a, a little, we get in such a way that they don't have the same impact. So let me tell you the gravity of this again. The grace that is offered comes through one man, but what it does, it follows a multitude of sins. That's what God's grace does. It flows from our trespasses or our sins because of his goodness as we recognize how sinful we have been. And so the move for us is to come into that grace, to know him, to love him, and to be in that eternal fellowship with him. I don't generally take my theology from U2, but for those who are familiar with the music of U2 and the lyrics of Bono, we're very familiar with what Bono teaches us about grace in a very few simple, short words in a sentence. Grace, it's the name of a girl, but it's also a thought that changed the world. It's a thought that changed the world. Grace takes away that debt. The trespasses that, has gone, that have gone before, it eradicates them. We are no longer held by their guilt and by their shame and by the consequence of that sin, which of course is judgment and condemnation. So as we pause and think about that, what does tomorrow look like for us? In the knowledge of this grace that God gives so freely, willingly and openly, what does tomorrow now look for us? As the alarm clock goes off at 6, 6.30, 7, 7.30, or whenever it goes off, how do we now enter into tomorrow? How does it make us feel and think about evangelism? Knowing that the grace that has won and saved me is also the grace that so freely will win and save others. Because it is God who does the work, and not me or not you. We just happen to be the vessels that God uses to share his message? How does it make us feel about the sin that still grips us as we try to follow Christ each day? God's grace is greater than any sin. He will forgive us and restore us. And this is the great message that we cannot afford to let wash over us yet again. So tomorrow morning, 
Grace means that you are free. Grace means that you are no longer under condemnation. The powers and authorities of this world will have their say and have their rules, but when it comes to eternity, they will not be the rules that will hold us. They are not the rules that judge our conscience. It is God and His grace that will bring us into His eternity. So we move. We move from the contrast of what happened through Adam and what happens through Christ. And Paul concludes this section by comparing the two. So moving from contrast to compare. And so once again, Paul takes two verses to make sure that we are fully understanding what he is saying. So let's listen to them, verses 18 and 19. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the one man, the many will be made righteous. Paul again is teaching us that God has done it. And now he teaches us that God will do it. This is Paul summing up the letter so far. He started off by telling us that he was not ashamed of the gospel because it was the message that changes lives and draws people to God. And so he says, just as sin came through one, so freedom. Freedom now and freedom in the future. God has done it and God will do it. And so he moves to teach us these things. And in verse 20, he once again states the purpose of the law. We thought about this two weeks ago. And John Stott sums it up as the law reveals sin, defining and displaying it. That's what it was for. Once again, we need to remind ourselves of the shock that this was to these people who lived religiously by the law. Because to them, this was how they were judged, their merit. Everything was tallied against the law. This was shocking news for them. This was life-changing. This was turning the world upside down as they knew it. How else were they supposed to live without having a thing with, on a piece of paper to guide them and show them? For them, the Mosaic law was given to increase righteousness. But Paul is now saying that with the law, sin increased. And the law provoked sin rather than preventing it. And so the letter doesn't look good for the original hearers. Nor does it look good for us if we're living in ways that depend on laws and works as our path of salvation. Paul does present us, though, with one of the biggest buts that we can ever imagine. So he's just presented this message of the law and how it really is nothing in terms of our righteousness and in terms of our relationship with God. And he says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Just as the law reveals the full extent of sin, so the gift of Jesus Christ reveals the full extent of God's grace. Grace that is limitless, irresistible, and free. So he comes to the finale of the passage he makes it very clear that grace reigns through righteousness so that we can be brought into eternal life through Jesus Christ. The wonder and the purpose of God's grace is that he accepts us no matter 
what our trespasses and our sins. And he accepts us as his people, even though we should be punished for all that we have done. And so the man who isn't ashamed of the gospel presents it to us in these verses because he presents to us the great message of the gospel. But I must bring a warning to us all. As I have been exposed more and more to God's grace, I must be aware of the temptation that that grace can lead me to. For me, the understanding of God's grace has been truly liberating. Growing up, and in my own understanding of how I saw things, to me it was a list of rules and regulations. But grace made me free from rules and regulations, knowing that I was only accountable to God for believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved. And so I was given a freedom to rejoice in whose I was rather than in what I did. But at times it's made me think that I can do anything, anything I want, and I can get away with it, because I've just said God's grace is greater than any of my sins. God's love is far greater than the evil that I can engage in. It's very easy for us to slip into the thinking that the more I sin, the more I can show God's grace. The reality is, the more I sin, the more I like it, and the more I enjoy it. Grace is not something we can abuse. This gift so precious in the sight of God is not something that we can cling to one moment and forget the next, thinking it will cover us from a multitude of sins. Turning on a tap intentionally, turning the tap off again, thinking that it will be there for me to use and abuse rather than the free gift of God that it is. God will not be played the fool. Our intention, our heart's desires are all available to God and his knowledge. This gift from God is not something we can abuse by sinning and thinking it will be all right. Whenever we intend to sin, the intent also is to harm our relationship with God because of our actions. He, he is the one who has made it possible for us to enter into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And put at its most simple, God has done the work through Jesus, so we don't have to. Grace. It's a thought that changed the world. And a new thinking on this life of grace that we can have in and through Jesus. Rather than works that are of law, thinking that we'll get our way there to God, this life of grace will change our perspective on our life and relationship with our Heavenly Father. It is the gift, the greatest gift we will ever know, but not one that we should abuse. This new model of humanity that we talked about at the start has sprung to life through Jesus, a life filled with grace. The humanity of Adam, the humanity of sin, no longer needs to be the way for us. So I ask you tonight, which humanity do you 
Which humanity do I desire? The humanity that's presented through Adam or the humanity presented through Jesus Christ? I do pray that for all of us, God would reveal his grace to us more and more so that we can acknowledge him as our Savior God who gives us the greatest gift of all. Let's pray. Father, you have offered a way to us that does not lead to death, but in fact leads to life. Just as through one man sin entered the world, so through one man your grace has come to us. As it is a gift, help us to understand it in its fullness so that we will not abuse it and thereby abuse you, thinking that we can live these two lives, one in the hand of Satan and the other in your hand. Father, you will forgive us for our sins. But you are also aware of the temptation of sin. And once we make that first step, Lord, we like it. And it's harder for us to return. Help us. Save us each day from sinning. So that we can grow in the likeness of Christ. And in relationship with you. So that our tomorrows will be a changed perspective as we see each day being grace-filled because it has come through Jesus Christ. So our relationships in home, at work, and in society in general will be changed and will be different because we know we are no longer condemned by the ways of the world. But we are free, free in the knowledge of this saving grace. Help us. Lead us in your way as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.